you know, just coming off of Sunday school, just looking at what salvation is, you know, Jesus belongs to me, not for time alone, but for eternity. Uh, sweet words, uh, when you match that up with the scriptures, what that means, and uh, a joy. Okay, turn to Romans chapter 9, if you would. Romans chapter 9. And <clears throat> just hold your place there for a little bit. A little bit of a shorter introduction this morning. You know, as you read through the epistles of Paul, you begin to get to know him in a more personal way. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you read the books that Paul wrote, put them all together so you can understand Paul. I think it will help you uh, in your understanding of, of his writings. Chapter 9 actually will give us a deep look into the soul of Paul. When we began this preaching, we laid out an alliterated outline of the book of Romans. They were chapters 1 through 8, doctrinal in nature. Chapters 9 through 11 are dispensational in nature, in particular that of Israel. And then chapters 12 through 16 are what I would call duty in nature. Now, two weeks ago, I preached out of chapter 7, which was the difficulty that comes with being a Christian. The internal battle of the flesh against the Spirit of God. A most wearisome battle. A battle fought, and that we'll fight to the end of our life here. Last week, out of chapter 8, we could say that the preaching placed us on the shore of a great ocean. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest wonders and beauties of the world to me is an ocean shore. It is a great wonder, and it fills every sense in the body to include taste, should you open your mouth and let some of that salt water come in. Taste you'll never forget. The ocean is the most sought out and most expensive land to build upon because of this. I suppose if you could explain the ocean in a word, it would be God. if, if, If I sat on the ocean shore and had to just say one word and looked at that ocean, hear those waves rolling in, watching that come in, seeing all the sea life, the sounds of it, the smell of it, I would say God. God's message to the Christian in chapter 8 of Romans is like a vast ocean, coming up to the vast ocean. It began with, if you think about looking at this ocean, it began with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in the middle, all things work together for good to those who love God. There's a good description of the ocean the ocean of God. Today we're going to explore chapters 9 through 11 that have to do with the past, present, and future of the nation of Israel. It's dispensational, and that just means like in time, regarding the dealings of God with Israel through the past in chapter 9, the present in chapter 10, and the future in chapter 11. Israel is quite the subject of the day, is it not? 
And God willing, we'll get a greater look at this nation in the next couple of weeks. In chapter 9 of Romans, we begin a journey into the depths of God's great ocean of wonder. The chapter begins with the depths of Paul's soul, which is the, is the effect of God's love upon one's soul. God's love is vast and it's deep. But, we'll know, but we will go even deeper to look into the sovereignty of of God in this chapter. These are the deepest waters we will ever explore with God. They are bottomless to our human understanding. Now with this brief introduction, I'm going to preach a message entitled Deep Waters. Deep Waters. Let's pray. Father, as we open up Romans chapter 9, the key word to me is that you have given me is depth, very deep, powerful, wonderful things. So deep that our feet can, can't touch the bottom in areas. Areas we cannot explore, but just to know that they're there. And so, Father, we can gain some things, some practical things from these thoughts today. And I pray that we will catch a hold of them. Very Two very simple thoughts today for the message. And so, Father, I pray you bless the preaching of your word. May your Holy Spirit do a mighty work in our hearts and lives. May I not be the subject. May you stand before us through your Holy Spirit, teaching us great things out of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you ever went, <clears throat> who's here has been to a large aquarium? Okay, you will notice that some of the greatest wonders of creation lie deep in the ocean. Amazing things. I, when I go to those, I just sit there and wonder at some of these things that are in the ocean. And that kind of makes me a little scared to go in the ocean, too. <laughs> it's a wonder to view the amazing creation of ocean life, isn't it? Though a great wonder, it's also somewhat of... It should be an expected thing if you think about it. When God sent his flood, it killed all the life that lived on the earth, save the remnant of man and a couple of living species that would be on the ark to begin a new world. But what was under the ocean? Though some life was buried in great flows of earth and fossilized, many or most of the ancient forms of life would have survived. We see some of the deepest. We can look back into the past through the ocean. The deeper we explore the ocean, the greater the wonder and curiosity of what can live under such darkness and great pressure. We've seen a few clips of some very strange fish that they just wonder how in the world do they live down there. But there's a limit to how deep man can go into the depths of the ocean. And there are things unexplorable to man in the very depths of the sea. We're limited. I suppose by Scripture I know what lies at the very bottom of the sea that we can never explore. Micah 7.19, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
I like that picture. I don't know about you. But it's so far down, we can't get to them or even see them. They're gone, forever gone. You know, it seems that there is a limit to man's knowledge of God. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. At the last verse of Romans chapter 11, we're going to get the conclusion of these chapters 9 and 10 and 11. A verse I very well have become fond of. In Romans chapter 9, we're going to take a deep dive into some deep theological, ooh, that's a big word, understanding of God. But we will reach a limit. And we'll have to recognize that limit. Romans 9.1, if you start there. <clears throat> it begins with, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Those are some pretty strong words. Paul saying, by God, I'm swearing by God. God in me knows this, that I have great heaviness and continual, great heaviness, this is deep, and continual sorrow in my heart. Then he makes an interesting statement, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, and it says, according to the flesh. Now we should consider that when Paul wrote this, he was being accused of being an enemy of his own people, the Jews. I want to read, this is, this is what he was up against when he was writing this. Acts 23.10, if you want to turn there, we'll read a part of uh, the scriptures here about what Paul was facing and, and what he was saying about these people and what these people were saying about him. Acts 23, beginning in verse 10, it said, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, <laughs> commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, his friends, his kinsmen, that he was sorrowful. And they were more than 40 which had made this cons conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, either they went back on that because Paul didn't get killed automatically or they were hungry. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, like, like make up this story to get him to come. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. We're going to jump him. When Paul wrote this, he was being persecuted by the people he associated himself with, the ones he grew up with. And we can all liken ourselves probably to Paul and, and what salvation is sometimes. Those he shared religious fellowship with and good Things in a sense. And he'll talk about that in a minute. You might say these were his 
close family. He enjoyed them and he loved them and they encouraged one another in what they believed the work of God was. He no doubt felt a human love and acceptance from this group and enjoyed their company. But he was separated from them because he trusted Christ and it meant another walk. But now he's an enemy to them because of his belief in Christ. He had to separate from them. What were his friends were now his enemy. It was hard for Paul for he loved his Jewish friends. He had good memories. I mean, I have good memories. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had good, fond memories. Perhaps you can relate to this. Many times coming to Christ is a condemnation to the people and way of life you grew up in. Though you never come to Christ to create a war. Nobody does. We come to Christ because we just come to Christ because we love Him. But a war is inevitable because of your repentance. It could be parents who brought you up in another way. I remember my parents struggled with me in the way I went. But the way you now live condemns the way you were brought up. It just does it. It could be because of your constant church attendance. You go to church. I've heard this. How often do you go to church? That's crazy. Your new convictions based on the Word of God. Many times families attack you because of your personal walk and devotion to God. Coming to Christ always has an effect on others. Though your hope is that your new life will encourage others to draw closer to God. And for some of you, and for some, you will, but one thing for sure is that you will bring persecution upon yourself by those whose your living condemns. It's guaranteed as a Christian that you're going to suffer persecution. The world doesn't like it. You condemn the world in your actions. Today we see ourselves condemned because the family, or we may see ourselves condemned because of the family get-together we host at our house has an absolute rule of no alcohol. I'm just telling you, I'm speaking, I went through this. My family likes to nip at the stuff, you know. And that really made them mad. Talked about us. Our extremist views. But it's a condemnation of those who enjoy their drinking. Because we're saying, we're to, this is not good. And they, you're, basically what they see is you're saying what they're doing is not good. You don't mean to do that. You're just trying to do what's right. But what's doing what's right is going to cause others to feel that you're condemning them. Your decision to homeschool sometimes is viewed, and, and I'm not saying homeschooling is the only way to go, but sometimes it's a view as a path to social disorders. Your kids are going to be socially wrong. Lack of opportunity and a hindrance to having friends and experiencing the lust of this world and the pride of life that you can get in, in school. Though I cannot say this for sure, I believe Paul is saying in this statement, and, I, and I'm taking some liberty here, I, I don't think we really can know for sure, 
unless Paul could explain it. He's saying, I could wish that I could, in my flesh, enjoy the old life with my friends again and show forth and restore fellowship with them because he loved them. I just kind of feel like he says, in the flesh, he knows in the spirit he cannot go back. And he knows he could. He said, I could wish that I could just be back in, in that loving spirit with them, but... Though I can't be sure for what Paul is saying in this, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These are deep, these are deep words. The kind of feelings are words that cannot fully express. But I can say this, Paul was deeply, this I know, he was deeply burdened for them. These are deep waters. He loved them even in the midst of their conspiracy of hate and plot to murder him. Truly, Paul had more than just a human Paul love. He had the love of God shed abroad in his heart. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Nobody can attain that kind of love unless you've trusted Christ and the Holy Spirit resides in you. This is the type of love. This is how deep that love is. We're talking about deep waters. Now, Paul reminisces about the wonderful godly heritage that he shares with his kinsfolk. He begins to describe it here. Verse 4, he says, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. He gives eight characteristics of the Israelite nation here. He says the adoption. <clears throat> God adopted them as a nation, the only nation that God ever called His Son as a nation. The adoption is a reference to Israel alone. <clears throat> the glory. The glory of God on the tabernacle in the wilderness then later on the temple given exclusively to the children of Israel that they would experience the glory of God. Exclusive to Israel. The covenant. To Israel belongs the covenant. Some already fulfilled and those to be fulfilled. The law, the Mosaic law was given to the children of Israel. The service of God, the carrying out of the service of God in the tabernacle and the temple of God, the priest and all that went into it and all that work that went into it, that was of, for Israel alone. The promises. The Old Testament abounds with promises to the nation of Israel. By the way, the land of Palestine has been given strictly to the Jewish nation. They will have it all one day. We see what's going on over there. Who knows? It's going to end up of, of that. But I do know one day Jesus will come here and He'll reign a thousand years. And, he, and the Jews will reign over in Palestine. They will have the Lamb because God promised. And then the fathers it talks about. Specifically talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Christ the Messiah, Jesus, was born a Jew in the flesh. Quite a remembrance he goes over of who the nation, of who he identifies with, of his people, and how they're uniquely characterized 
Now Paul's going to further define who Israel is. Paul will make a distinction that just because you were born in the flesh as an Israelite does not make you an Israelite in spirit. What he calls the true Israel. For Jesus was not accepted by all Jews. Only a remnant we will see. These are the real Israel. He says in verse 6, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And he's going to make another distinction in verses 7 through 9. And it kind of reminds me of sports tryouts. Brittany, have you ever tried out for sports? You know you could have. (laughs) Anyone identified as a student of the school can try out to be a member of that school sport team. They don't reject anybody. Anybody can sign up and try out. But then there are multiple cuts (laughs) until the final team is identified. Paul makes another cut here that it is not Father Abraham alone that makes you an Israelite. Those whose lineage is in Ishmael are cut as being an Israelite. Only in the lineage of Isaac. Isaac was the promised seed. In the spirit God only identified Isaac as his only son. When he took him up to to the mountain to to, uh, offer him up, he said, take thy son, thine only son. Well, Ishmael was already born. He had a son. He did not even look to him because it was in the spirit. Ishmael was a son of the flesh. Verse 7, beginning in verse 7, we're going to see another cut here. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Not Hagar, who bore Ishmael. Now comes yet another cut in the Israelite lineage. That Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah, conceived twins, but only one was chosen as the promised seed. Twins, but only one is the promised seed. Not the firstborn Esau, but rather Jacob, the secondborn. There's something, though assumed here, is made very clear. You're gonna, if you're listening, he's beginning to explain the sovereignty of God. These are the deepest waters we'll ever get into in the Bible. The sovereignty of God. In other words, God will do what God will do. Verse 10 through 12. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Okay, we're good here. Here's the cut. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. In other words, there was nothing to judge. They weren't even born yet. God already chose. I'm telling you, this is deep waters. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. God chose Jacob. 
He was chosen before birth, before either one was born, and showed any deeds of good or evil. As it is written in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now this statement comes from a time well after these boys now (laughs) showed themselves of who they are. In Malachi 1-2 it says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. You know, it's been a concern of some that they struggle with the scripture that says God hated Esau. In our flesh, you know, it's just hard to, you know, in the wording of that. But there is others who would say that it is easy to see why God hated Esau. He was a godless fellow, filled with pride, a lover of the flesh, a jealous spirit, bearing the nation of Edom who would come after Israel and try to destroy them. That's what came out of him. I'd say it's easier to understand why God didn't didn't like him, hated him. The bigger question would be, he seemed to be, why did God love Jacob, the liar? That's a harder one to understand. You look at Jacob, he wasn't the greatest thing. It was simply the sovereign will of God. He would choose who he would choose. We struggle with these thoughts at times. Questions like, I never chose to be born. Why was I born a sinner? Why should I have to deal with being born into sin? That was Adam and Eve's choice. I didn't get that choice. All these kind of human reasons. Why is this and why is that? We reason these things in our mind and in essence we question if God made some mistake in the way you ordain things. We think of God in our own manner, that like us, that you learn by mistakes. We may not say it that way, but our actions kind of do that. Paul opens that question up in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, is God wrong In any way. Is there any little bit of not right, unrighteousness in him? He says, God forbid. Famous words to the book of Romans. He asks questions, God forbid. You've got to be crazy. That's stupid. Get away from your dumb thinking, however you want to put it. God is always right. Period. In my estimation, Job was probably the greatest, most righteous man to live on this earth. You, you read a certain chapter of what he said, but there's not, I haven't found a man in the Bible that really matches that close to how he served God. His problem? He questioned God's sovereignty and what he allowed to take place in his life. It was more than a question, though. It's okay to question God and to try to understand something. But Job really... And his question insinuated that God did not have a good reason for what he did to him. Now in the flesh, you go through what Job did, you can understand that. Job never cursed God like Satan said he would. But he certainly questioned him and his actions. The book of Job has been described as the reason for why the righteous suffer. 
Uh, it may be one reason why a Christian may suffer, but I believe that there are many lessons in the book of Job. The overwhelming lesson to me is to never question the perfect sovereignty of God, no matter how hard it is to understand. This is the depth level of the sea where we can go no further. We can't handle it. We can't understand it. It's just at a level we have to stop. We can only go so far in the depths of the sea or we're crushed by the pressure. We just have no ways. We may inch down a little farther, but we just can't get that far. We, can't get, we can only go so high to try to find God to where we can't go no higher. He says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God has the whole plan. We just don't understand it. He already knows what was going to happen. He accepted everything, every good thing, every person that was going to go to hell, every person that was going to be in destruction, every person that was going to be saved, which he calls his elect, because that's what he did it for, and he knew what all the consequences was ahead of time. Even though we have our own free will. Those are deep waters. <laughs> Those are God's waters. They're the His. He's simply stating here, because it's not because of who I am, nor my decisions, or by works that He saved me. It's because of who God is. We need to understand that God knew how everything would turn out, even with us having our own will. He knew who would believe on Him, and who would not? We don't. And we live in time. And we must be responsible. We are living it out. This is another line in the depth of the sea whereby we cannot perceive. What I will do in Christ and the works I may do for His glory may indicate the possession of God's mercy and grace in my life. But they are not the original cause. Now Paul gets a little deeper into the sovereignty of God. Besides seeing the sovereignty of God in mercy and compassion, he shows the sovereignty of him hardening the heart of someone. Verse 17, the scripture, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath, mer hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will hardeneth. Pharaoh was hardened, but you know what? As hard as he got, he, God is greater. He showed that he will let this people go. And he did. Because he is sovereign. He is God. And nobody's going to get one over on him. These are very deep waters now. Very uncomfortable, for we are reaching the end of our understanding of God. Paul takes a breather now that he has gone this deep into the sovereignty of God to ask a question to see if we are still on board. Thou will say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Here comes man's reasoning rushing in again. It is the same questioning type of Job. The first three men 
that questioned Job in his troubles were his friends. They concluded this in Job 32.1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu. Now you have man and you're going to have man and God speak to Job because Elihu was filled with the Spirit of God. He was giving him a right answer, but it was coming from an easier source, from a man, not God. Because when God, hey, when God, when you see God, like Brother Mike was alluding to in Revelation, the Apostle John fell at his feet, he's dead. The great Apostle John, who the beloved, the one who was close, God gives him a man to tell him. Here's what he says at the end. Touching the Almighty, he says, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. Then God delivers the final blow to Job. Job chapter 38, if you want to turn there. This is just the start of God speaking directly to Job. Put yourself in this place. This is, like I said, I think the greatest man ever lived on this earth. At least arguably so. Job 38.1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Here comes God into the picture and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as it had issue out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up, break up, for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said hitherto shall thou come but no further hear that here will you come but no further and here shall thy proud waves be stayed God continues his rebuke you have to read it oh boy talk about feeling small before God but it could be summarized as this. God says, who are you to tell me what to do? You may have said that to somebody at some point. Who are you to tell me what to do? These words of God, God to Job are similar to the rebuke here in Romans 9, 20 through 23. Let's pick it back up again. He says, nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say... Say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the pow potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, 
willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering in which he has. This is amazing. The vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he afore prepared unto glory. Now Paul will fold in the sovereignty of God as related to the Gentiles, as it was also prophesied from old. Even us, verse 24, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Here's what the Gentiles are. Anybody that's not a Jew. <laughs> As he saith also in O.C., which is Hosea, it's a Greek word for Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. The Gentiles. Salvation has come. Now, Hosea 2.23, which is prophesied from, it says, And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. The Jews have a problem with that. That's a stumbling block for them. They were the special. This thing about Jehovah, although it was prophesied way back. Now God will bring his sovereignty to a climax here. He says, Isaiah, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. You know what a remnant is? A little piece of them. Not the whole, a small piece of them shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, except that God ordained a seed to come through, we had been like Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah, totally destroyed. The great nation of Israel would have perished altogether except for the sovereignty of God to save them by a remnant. What an indictment upon man's religious pride. Not only the Jewish religious group whose heart would harden and crucify Christ, but also upon a proud, rebellious, religious, powerless church. Before the rapture, the church at whole will be great and deceived. But God will reserve a remnant of them as well. Paul brings to a conclusion, who are the righteous ones before God? Who, who are the ones who are really Israel in the spiritual sense, who are His children in the spiritual sense? He says, what shall we say then in verse 30? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, they, they weren't doing all those things the Jews were doing, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is by, which is of what? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, did all the things and not attained unto the law of righteousness. And then he has a question, wherefore? How come? Because they sought it not by faith. It's always been by faith from the beginning of time. This faith and believing 
what God said. But it says, but as it were, here's what they did, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. That was Jesus. He blew them up. He was offensive to them. They have already built their religion. They, they weren't going to say he was God. And whosoever believeth on him, it says, shall not be ashamed. He speaks here in the generality of two people groups, generalities. The Jew and the Gentile. So it's generalized that Israel generally rejected Christ. And generally the Gentiles received Christ. But the specific message is righteousness before God or to be right before God is by faith in Christ regardless of the people group you are identified with. The last verse ends not with Jew or Gentile. It ends with whosoever. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Deep waters. Deep, deep, deep the love of God that you can love those who hate you, do good unto your enemies, those who persecute you. Deep waters, the sovereignty of God. A place where it's just unexplainable. You can only go down so far to find it and you, you have to stop. You can only go so high and you have to stop because you're unable. He's just too big. He's too great. He's too wonderful for this human nature to, to understand. We just trust it. With heads bowed and eyes closed, pianist becoming to play. Here's what I want to challenge you with today. Well, for one, if, you're, if you haven't really trusted Christ fully and wholly, I mean, trusting Christ is giving everything. It's when you've dropped everything and you're just going to trust His Word and you're going to live according to that, regardless of whatever happens around you. Yes, it'll be a struggle. That's part of it. But you've given wholly and fully your life to Him. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. But with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And then with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's something you make known. And then it's something you identify by baptism with. If you have trusted Christ, you've had to separate yourself some people may say some hard things the people you love the most but you'll love them anyway if you can't love them probably because you're not saved because by the spirit of God the love of God resides in you and that's what gives you the ability care for and love those who would persecute you. Kind of a raw example, but 
There are some people who love animals so much, even though they bite them when they're trying to help them, they'll do it anyway. To God, we would have the care and love for a lost and dying world, especially our own family. That we would be deeply burdened with the love of God for them. And then the sovereignty of God. How deep that is. God will do what He do. Here's what we need to do. We need to know and rest in God cannot make no mistake. No matter what we're going through, God cannot fail. We don't have to understand. We can only go so deep with that, how God does all this and how He puts it together and how He runs our life. It's just too deep for us. We just need to trust Him and know that He's got it figured out. There's something about that name, Jesus. song spoke to your heart pray God spoke to your heart and life through his word this is a tough chapter to to teach through and so are a couple more here coming up because they're just so deep but I hope uh, God's simplified it for you he didn't make us to be afraid of that but just to trust in him father thank you for your word thank you for those who have come I pray your blessings and and help and encouragement in each family today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.